0: Graduate programs focus on preparing students to become researchers and practitioners in the disciplines, but generally offer little support for those choosing to pursue teaching careers. In this episode, we discuss some strategies that new faculty can use to support a transition to a career at a teaching-focused institution. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
1: This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist.
0: And Rebecca Mushtare, a graphic designer.
1: And features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners.
0: Our guest today, are Pamela Ansberg, Mark Basham, and Regan Gurung. Pamela is a professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Mark is a behavioral neuroscientist at Regis University. And Regan is the Associate Vice Provost and Executive Director for the Center for Teaching and Learning and a professor of Psychological Sciences at Oregon State University. They are the co-authors of Thriving in Academia, Building a career at a teaching focused institution, which was published earlier this year by the American Psychological Association. Welcome, Pamela and Mark, and welcome back, Regan.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you, John. And Rebecca.
1: Thank you. Today's teas are Pam, are you drinking tea? Earl Grey? Because
3: I like a classic. (laughs) How about you, Mark?
4: Well, we're in Colorado, which is home of celestial seasonings. So when I'm drinking tea, I'm always drinking a
2: celestial seasonings tea. Usually sleepy time, even during the day. Are they sponsoring this podcast or something, Mark?
1: (laughs) Right? Yeah.
2: I'm in the Pacific Northwest, ours behind all of you, so I'm actually still on my morning cup of coffee. All right. That's fair. And I am drinking ginger tea.
1: Nice. I have some jasmine green tea now.
2: Ooh, very nice. Nice.
1: And for John's benefit, it's been like an evolution over the day of what kind of tea I've had.
0: Rebecca is at home. I'm sitting in this control room for this old recording studio. So I've got this tea and you this to pack tea. Them all this morning. <laughs> and this tea. And two of them were insulated, so they're still warm. <laughs> We've invited you here today to discuss thriving in academia. PhD programs generally provide fairly solid training for grad students planning for a research focused career. But most Ph.D. students don't end up in research institutions they end up in teaching focused institutions. And your book is designed to ease this transition. How did this book project come about?
3: It came about from a conference presentation. We were at a conference. The three of us met up and started catching up and talking with one another and thinking about where our careers had led us Regan and I have been friends and colleagues for, I don't know, 25 years or so, even though we were never in the same physical location. We had a long history, Mark and I are married, and so when we all got together, we're kind of talking about where the time had taken us and what we wanted to do and what are the things that we were learning about. And basically our interactions with our junior colleagues and the questions that they were asking. And we started to realize that we had some knowledge that we thought would be helpful for people going on this career path.
4: One of the things I think we all talked about that first dinner was we were all in positions where we were mentoring younger faculty or newer faculty, and we were seeing them have the same challenges and make some of the same mistakes that we had made, that we had seen early career faculty make over and over and over again. And we thought, well, there should be some resource there needs to be a book certainly there must be a book out there and it turns out there wasn't and so then we were like well we should write it the guide to having the career at a teaching focused institution instead of how to do research.
2: Yeah, and I think just an important thing for me to add is picking up on what Pam said about we met at a conference. It was a teaching conference, and I think that's important. It was a teaching conference, and it really made us realize how often it was only at teaching conferences that people felt like they could out themselves as being passionate teachers. And I think all three of us have had the occasion of being at a non-teaching conference, a conference in our field, and going to a session that was on teaching. And then especially having grad students come up and say, oh, I'm so glad I can talk about teaching here because I can't do that at my research institution or with my mentor, or anywhere else. And I think that really fueled our fire to say, we need to sort of unpack that hidden agenda about how it is at a teaching-focused institution where service and research is still important, but the fact is teaching is primary. And what does that do to your psyche and things like that? So that's why it's sort of neat that it happened at a teaching conference because we looked around at all these people who really didn't have another home to really talk about teaching and share what the additional challenges of teaching does when you're in higher education.
0: We were so impressed by the book here that our provost is buying copies of the book for all of our new faculty, and we're going to have a reading group this fall with them working through it through the semester. Oh, thank you. We were very pleased by this.
3: We really appreciate it. And we hope it will be very useful. I think it will be. You've talked about this already a
1: little bit, but can you talk about who the primary audience for the book is? And is it while they're in school? Is it right when they're looking for a job? Like, when's the best time to engage with this book? We
4: really tried to write it for all of those audiences. So certainly the book starts with just defining what is a teaching-focused institution. How do you know one when you see one? How do you find one? We talk about how do you find the jobs that are there? how do you prepare yourself for those jobs? But we also talk a lot about what does that job look like? As John said during the intro, most PhD programs don't train you to teach, certainly, and they definitely don't teach you about advising. They don't teach you about how to be a good committee member, how to do mentoring, you know, all of those sorts of things.
3: And you also don't have those role models. When you're in a PhD program, your advisors are researchers, and so that's who you get to model yourself after. So that was another reason why we thought this book was useful.
4: And then as we started writing it, we started to realize, well, what about people that are in the middle of their career? There are some unique challenges to that at a teaching-focused institution. So then we said, well, we should include that. So that's another potential audience. There's a whole chapter on mid and late career. How do you stay invigorated? How do you handle a transition into being a chair or a dean or a provost? How do you handle potentially switching institutions. So we really think the audience is anybody who is in a teaching-focused career or contemplating a teaching-focused career.
2: And I think one particular fun part is by virtue of the fact that we're all, and maybe I should put my co-authors on the spot here, what are you guys? Are you (laughs) mid-career? What do you call yourselves? Yeah, don't let the gray hair or lack thereof fool you. I mean, the reality is all of us have been around For some time. And the neat thing of that is, we not only reflected on folks where we are and a few years ahead of us, but, and this is the part of the book I loved in particular, was it's packed with our stories of different points in our career. So we've got stories in there from when we were grad students, from when we were junior assistant faculty and associate faculty. And so in that way, I think you can really see yourself no matter where you are in your career. And there are three of us, we all read each other's chapters. That was one of the most fun parts for me was to read Mark's and Pam's stories because each chapter ends with a personal story and each of us took turns writing that. And it was a lot of fun to get the first look at Pam's story or Mark's story, because there were things that, even though we've known each other for some time, we haven't talked about, but it immediately, I think, invites the reader into the different stages of careers.
3: And I think depending on where you're at in your career, parts of the book will resonate differently with you. So when you're just beginning, if you're in graduate school, you really are just trying to understand what the job is. Once you take on the decision to become a professor at a teaching-focused institution, then it gets real and you really have to figure out, what do I need to do here? And then even if you've been in the role for a little while, we have some, I think, neat tips about efficiencies and ways to take and model your career and make choices to help you really feel fulfilled as you go through.
2: I just want to add one more thing. I think educators or especially grad students, but even educators in general, Forget often that there are close to 4,300 colleges and universities in the U.S. itself. 4,300. Yet, when we're in grad school, so many of us are so often just thinking about that small number of research schools. And what's neat about this was it was the recognition of the fact that there are so many varieties of institutions. 4,300 out there. That's a lot of variants. And I think all three of us have realized in our careers, in the work that we do, that the absolute bulk of faculty and instructors at those 4,300 institutions never get the chance to talk about teaching or talk to peers about the challenges of being at a teaching-focused institution. And I think that's the eyes in which we set out to write this book, is to say, if you've never had the chance to be to a teaching conference, or to have that support structure, or have your teaching champion join us and read this book, and it's really written with that voice. And I mean, it's not your dry book, the three of us let ourselves and the publishers let us be more conversational in places, which I think really invites you into that conversation.
0: The faculty that grad students are working with see the reputation of their institution being partly reflected by how many other grad students end up in top universities within their discipline. And there's generally not a lot of discussion of other options, or if there is, it's often a discouragement of that that maybe people should apply at teaching colleges as a backup rather than as their primary market. Yet that's not why all grad students chose to go to grad school. Many people would like a career in a teaching-focused institution. What advice do you provide in the book for students who are looking at alternatives, who are trying to choose between a research-focused institution or a teaching-focused institution? or What sort of guidance do you suggest or what factors should they consider?
4: Before I actually answer your question or let one of my co-authors answer your question, I think you hit upon one of the real driving forces about this book, which is that as a grad student, as Pam mentioned, your mentors are researchers, typically. But the whole incentive structure, you're right, at a big research university, the things that are prioritized, that are incentivized are doing research. And then making sure that your students do research and contribute. And so once you go to a teaching focused institution, even though you're still going to do research, you're still going to do scholarship, you're still going to do all the parts. But the incentive structure is much different. And that's a big change from being a grad student. But as far as the advice, it seems sort of obvious. But one of our main pieces of the advice is get experience teaching. The more experience you can get, the better. And we have a lot of sort of suggestions about how to go beyond just being a TA as a grad student, but how do you connect with maybe community colleges or teaching-focused institutions that are nearby so that you can become an instructor of record for a course or two? Because really, that's the only way to know which way you want to go. You're trying the research. You're doing that as a grad student. You really need to try your hand at the teaching part and see how that feels.
3: And I would also add that reaching out to find somebody who is at a teaching focused institution in your field and send an email and just explain who you are. You're a graduate student, you're exploring this as a potential career path. And would they be willing to give you fifteen minutes of time just to explain what their daily life is like? Because I think as a graduate student of PhD program, you don't really have a good window on what the daily activities of a professor at a teaching focused institution is and so just hearing somebody talk about what do they do on a daily basis and what are the challenges and what are the advantages and why they made the decision to go into a teaching focused track is another strategy
2: yeah this is why i love having two co-authors because we all come at things from such different directions when i heard your question john i immediately thought of the importance of mentoring And we had a really good time writing about mentoring, both how to find a good mentor, but then also how it's important to be a good mentor. And that's where I first went to, which is many times our mentors are very well-meaning and looking out for us and looking out for the best, but it's often the best according to them. And I think I was very fortunate that I had some mentors who, even though they were really training me to be research one university people, when I said I really wanted to teach, they said, "Okay, I respect that and let me help you. And I know that's not the case with many mentors who you may even shudder to mention the fact that you are looking at a small liberal arts college or that's where you'd like to go. Full disclosure, Mark and I both went to Carleton College, a small liberal arts college, where teaching was a big deal, and the faculty were passionate about teaching. And I know I took that with me through my grad schools, and I was a postdoc at UCLA. I was in grad school at the University of Washington, both big research one schools. But thankfully, my exposure to a liberal arts school where faculty loved to teach I knew it was possible. I knew it was possible. I always hung on to that. And I always think about those grad students who didn't have that kind of exposure to passionate teachers who only have a research one exposure, but who still want to teach. How do we let them know that teaching is an option? And that's where I think Pam's advice is so good. Find somebody who is passionate about teaching either at one of those teaching schools or I will add elsewhere in your discipline. But find your champion who is willing to say, I will support you in going to a teaching focused institution.
0: One other thing I think that is becoming much more common is even in research institutions, there are more people hired as professors of the practice or some similar name where there are some people who specialize in effective teaching. So there may be people in more and more departments now who could serve in that mentoring role without even having to leave the institution. That was very uncommon when I was a grad student, but it is becoming a bit more common now.
1: Thanks for sharing your story, Regan. One of the things that you made me think about is how lucky I was to have some of the mentors I had in graduate school, because I got to teach a special topics class as a graduate student and write my own class and try it out my last semester. And it was a really great experience for me. And I also wanted to just note here, we've been talking a lot about PhD programs, but the same thing also happens in programs like MFA programs that are also terminal degrees, but might have a slightly different context. But there are those that are really focused on the creative practice and being in a research institution versus teaching as well. So that does kind of span across those kinds of programs as well. Regan, I think, is
4: more tenacious than I am. I remember sitting in that Carleton classroom and looking at my professors and thinking, hey, this is what I want to do. But then I also know that as I went on and got a master's degree and PhD program, and then as a postdoctoral researcher, I kind of forgot that. I forgot that dream. It was easy to get indoctrinated into the, I'm going to be a researcher. I'm going to strive for the Nobel Prize. I'm going to do this. And it wasn't until I almost accidentally ended up teaching my first class, which I did only because my first child was born and I needed the extra money. And I sort of surreptitiously, without my PI and my postdoc knowing, signed up to teach a class. And then when I got in front of a classroom full of students, it sparked that memory of like, oh, I remember why I started this journey. I started this journey because I wanted to be like those passionate professors that I had as an undergrad. And I had forgotten that along the way. And then I'm one of those people who had to sort of do a pivot without a lot of support, where I had conversations. I adore my advisors and the PIs I've had over the years. And they were wonderful mentors in many ways. But they were lukewarm at best in supporting that transition to teaching-focused institution. So I'm one of those people who had to sort of swim upstream to get to where I am.
2: I love that story, Mark, because my undergrad experience actually was the opposite. And when I sat in class as an undergrad, although I respected the passion Teaching was the last thing I thought I would do. I had absolutely no idea. I was brought up in the classic Indian tradition of, hey, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. And I'm grateful to my parents to saying, psychology, sure, give it a shot. But I was completely PhD, research. That was all I could think about. And I mentioned this because there will be many people listening or reading who likewise may have come to teaching out of the blue. Through my grad program, we didn't have to teach. So Rebecca, when you said you got a chance to teach, wow, that's great. There are many folks out there who never get the chance to teach because it's not part of the plan. In grad school, I did not have a chance to teach, but a friend invited me to do a guest lecture in their class and that one hour changed the trajectory of my life because the high that I got from that 50 minutes of the reactions, of the feedback, of what it felt like. then I knew that's what I wanted to do. But And this is what I was going to say, Rebecca, in in response to your story. But then it was hard work. People, be prepared. If you want teaching experience, sometimes you're going to have to work very hard to do it. And that's why I think, Mark, you mentioned going and looking if there's a course at a community college that you can teach. That's what I had to do at a postdoc. I was a postdoc at UCLA, fully funded, and I wanted to teach. So I went and taught at a college an hour away because that was the only place that had an opening for a course. So be prepared to really fuel that teaching passion. It may take time and effort as part of the whole deal. I'll
3: just tag on to Regan's. I had the same experience as Regan. I was research all the way, no interest in teaching whatsoever. In fact, when I got into my PhD program, I was really upset because there was no research assistant positions, and I had to have a TA position. And I fought. I went to see the chair, and I said, I really don't want this. I really want to be a researcher. And he said, well, do you want money? Do you want the TA? And I thought, okay, I guess I'll be a TA. And I just was like, this is going to be horrible. I'm going to hate it, but I'll do it for the money. Fine. And the same experience, Regan, I had to run a few sessions for an introductory psychology class. I walked into the class with the worst attitude you could have ever imagined. And within two minutes, I was in love. Total turnaround. It was a really amazing experience. And so I would say, like, sometimes you don't know where you're headed. And the advice I give to my students is be open. I wasn't particularly open. I got forced into a situation and then it changed my whole life.
0: Which comes back to that advice that you talked about earlier of trying to teach a class just to see what it's like, because it would be very easy for many people to go through grad school without realizing that that's something that they really do have a passion for. Or that may be something that they just never want to do. So having that experience is really essential. I was in a position where I was planning on going into research until one of the professors left very suddenly. And with a couple of days notice, I was teaching a course. And I decided from that point, that's what I wanted to do. I was on a fellowship. I didn't have to do any teaching. But once I did, it pretty much determined the path of my career.
4: It was one of the fun things about writing this book was we would write two-thirds of a chapter, and then we would read it, and we would email each other and say, Man, we're making this sound like a terrible job. We're making this sound like it's really hard. And then we would say, We need to add in. What's the reward? Why do we do that? And I think the final product does a good job both sort of addressing how difficult it is, how much time it's going to take, what is this job really like, but then also... Why do we do it? Because it's not for the money. We all do it for the joy you get from doing all of these things. And even not just the teaching, but we talked about the satisfaction of service done well, the satisfaction of involving students, particularly undergraduate students in your scholarship and your research. And so I think, as Regan was saying earlier, it's a very accessible book because it does talk about the difficulties, but it also talks about the joys and rewards from doing this job.
1: It's funny, Mark, that you mentioned that you had initially taught for the money. So did I. I didn't do it because I wanted to teach necessarily, but then we stay because of other things. (laughs) So one of the things that you talked about is thinking about some of the challenges and surprises and maybe positive things of working at a teaching institution. What are some of the things that are different at a teaching institution than at a research institution that people should think about?
2: There's so much. (laughs) I have actually a number because when we first talked about this book, talked about it, even the idea for it, I was at one institution, which is a very teaching-focused institution, and then very recently moved to a Research One institution. Now, that said, I sit in the Center for Teaching and Learning, so I am surrounding myself with teaching and learning, but it really opens my eyes to some of those really big differences that I do see out there. And I think the biggest difference is In the fabric of a teaching-focused institution are constant conversations about teaching, where I know that next to every day, I would get coffee with a colleague at my teaching-focused institution, the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, and we'd talk about teaching. Or we'd pop out of our office and we'd talk about teaching. Or we'd walk to somebody else's office and we'd say, hey, I'm playing with this assignment. What do you think about teaching? And that doesn't happen with the same frequency at Research One schools. I think what does happen, though, and this goes back to Pam's comment that I'm going to take up a notch. Pam said, hey, find somebody at a teaching-focused institution. I'm going to modify that a little bit to say, even at Research One schools, if you're interested in teaching, find somebody who's interested in teaching. Because just a couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a colleague here at Oregon State, and he said a very interesting thing to me at lunch where he said, I don't get to talk about teaching a lot, but I wondered what you thought about this. And it was this great conversation about student attendance and recording lectures or not. But the way he tentatively put it forward as the, I never get a chance to talk about this, but here was I want to talk about. That was so neat. And in stark contrast to when I was at a teaching focused institution, we had chances to talk about it all the time. In fact, for me at a teaching focused institution, I needed to create opportunities to talk about research because our default was to talk about teaching. So that was one big difference.
3: I would also add that service is a much bigger expectation at a teaching-focused institution than at a research-focused one. So not only are you balancing the demands of teaching and having all the pleasure of talking about teaching and experimenting with teaching and keeping your scholarship reasonably productive, you're also really expected to contribute quite a bit to your institution or your department through service. And sometimes that can get a little bit out of control if you don't make smart decisions about where you're going to spend your time in terms of doing service. So I would say that that is one of the things that is really never really explored very much, but really is a large part of the job at a teaching-focused institution is service. And since Regan and
4: Pam talked about teaching and serving, I guess I can talk a little bit about advising because I think that's another big difference. When I was in grad school, when I was a postdoc, when I looked at the people that were at the research institutions, they never talked about advising. If they did it, it was sort of obligatory, get it done as quickly as possible. Whereas at most teaching-focused institutions, although there are some that have professional advisors that are doing that, but oftentimes it's the faculty that are advising students and doing that academic advising, the career discernment advising. And I think that's a big difference, too. And I think that's one of those things that isn't obvious at first. When people think about a teaching-focused institution, they obviously think about teaching. They know that they're probably going to do some scholarship. But many people, until they have the job, don't realize how much time you're going to spend both formally and informally advising students. And especially that informal advising can take up a lot of time at a teaching-focused institution.
3: So to tie it back to the question about applying and being prepared for an academic position, these are things that would be helpful to be at least conversant in. How would you approach your service commitments? Where do you see spending your time? Be able to speak about your advising philosophy as well as teaching and your research. I think that would make a competitive applicant.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the advice that you offer related to balancing things like academic advising, teaching, research, and service, and all the other things that we didn't even talk about?
4: Well, this is the big challenge. We talk a lot in the book about trying to do two things at the same time. So can you integrate some of the research into the classroom? Can you combine those so that the research becomes part of the teaching? Can you involve your students in part of the research process, both as part of the research lab, but also as part of the classroom experience? We talk about being really intentional about service, not saying yes to everything. There's great pressure, especially on early in the career faculty to say yes to service requests, particularly when they come from a chair or a dean. How can you possibly say no? And we discuss in the book that you actually can say no, and sometimes you should say no. And how do you do that gracefully? How are you intentional about those service activities so they don't take over everything? And then I tell this story in the book about my early advising. I got no training in how to do academic advising. I was handed a sheet that had the degree requirements and told, hey, meet with these students. And I memorized the sheet and I got pretty good at getting students registered for classes and I could get students in and out of an advising session in 20 minutes. And I was looking at all my colleagues who are spending an hour or more with every student. And I thought, you guys are crazy. This is get the student in, tell them what classes to take, get them out of your office, sign the form so that I had time that I could do research. I didn't want to be spending time advising. And it took me several years to realize I was actually missing the point, the point of academic advising at teaching-focused institutions and particularly at the institution I was at was not just get the students registered for the next semester. It was to help them figure out career discernment, help them figure out how they were going to navigate the difficult courses, how they were going to balance the courses to get to know them so that I could write letters of recommendation for them. And with several years of experience, then suddenly I became one of those people spending an hour or more with every student. But it takes a while to figure out that balance.
2: To add to that is the notion that How you balance is going to vary, and what you balance is going to really vary at where you are in your career. And I think, going back to your earlier question, Rebecca, was who's this book for? And our very neat response, which is everybody along the spectrum, something we really tried to address in all over the book is, remember, this will be different for you depending on where you are. And so we have parts where we're like, hey, if you're a grad student, remember this. If you're a tenured faculty member, remember this. So I think that how to balance varies on where you are in your career. Now, that said, that's not answering your question on tips to balance. It's just kicking the can down a little bit. So I will address how to balance. I think at the end of the day, there are just so many different productivity tips and tools. And I think our best suggestion is, remember that there's no one planner or app that works for everybody. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say, For many of us, an app is not the way to go. Go old school. Something we did in our household yesterday is my spouse pulled out a sheet of paper, a ruler, and a felt pen and drew out the month of July so we could write on what our two kids would be doing during the week so they could plan and balance their summer. And I think sometimes in this world of apps and technology, We keep looking for an app to help us balance, where sometimes it's going old school and writing it out or drawing it out in a journal or a calendar and going that route. The key suggestion here is find a way that's good for you. Don't stick with something that's not working. I think that's a really key part that we wanted to share over the years is, I don't know about Pam and Mark, but I know I have tried different things and have settled on what works really well for me in terms of creating balance.
4: And one of the things I learned from writing the book with Regan is this idea that sometimes you have to be creative about thinking about how you're going to get scholarship done. I was in this mindset that I needed to be able to block off big chunks of time to research. And so I was constantly trying to find six hours on three consecutive days so that I can do this. And then in reading Regan's what he wrote for this book and talking to Regan, I had this realization that, well, I can reconceptualize how I do that. And maybe it is work on scholarship for just long enough until it loses efficiency and then switch to something else and do that until I lose efficiency and then switch to a third thing and then come back. And this sort of not trying to say, well, I have to have these huge blocks of time, but say, I'm going to do something as long as it's productive. And as soon as it stops being productive, I switch to the next thing
3: both Mark and Regan offered very practical, down-to-earth advice, and mine's going to be a little bit more abstract, philosophical. It's important for me to always know, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing whatever the thing is that I'm doing? And is it important to who I am as a professional? Does it match my goals? And my goals may be determined sometimes if I'm not tenured yet, it may be determined by other people. But always sort of looking at it from a strategic, holistic viewpoint so that you can make the decisions about what kind of research do you want to do? How do you want to integrate that with teaching? What about service? How can you come up with a coherent, connected professional life? And for me, that has always been really important and it's really helped me balance because I can have a sense of what I'm trying to do and who I'm trying to become as a professional. And then when opportunities are available, I can always match that against, does this fit what I want to do and how I want to proceed as a professional? Sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do and things that don't fit exactly But for the most part, there's so much to be done. You really do have a lot of control about what specific things you do. It's just important to know who you are and where you want to be heading.
0: One of the things you address in the book is mentoring and finding support for your work. Many campuses, maybe most campuses, will provide formal mentors, but that doesn't always work as well as institutions hope. Could you give some suggestions on how new faculty can develop mentoring support in their new positions?
3: I think one of the best things to do is to look around your institution and identify people that you admire, who has the career that you'd like to have, who is involved in the things that you'd like to be involved in, and then reach out to them. So I think that's a quick, short answer, but you can do that relatively easily. Just being around in a university, you'll start to notice people who are doing different things, and you'll start to develop admiration, reach out to those people.
4: And I agree with that. And The only thing I would add is it doesn't have to be at your own institution. Look around, look at your professional societies, look at the people that you're collaborating with, find the people, like Pam said, who have the career you want. Reach out to those people. Most people are flattered to be approached and say, hey, can you give me advice? Can you informally
2: mentoring me most people are happy and eager to
4: do that if they're
2: and something that relates to both of those especially at your university you will see some usual suspects the people who are always showing up at the things that you're showing up at those are great people to grab some coffee with or another beverage with tea tea Tea. exactly
1: always tea
2: kombucha this is oregon go for some kombucha (laughs) and just chat some more So be on the lookout for those people you see often, because there is actually something to connecting with somebody in a different discipline at your university. There are many, many benefits to that. And we talk about that a fair amount. But I'm going to take what Mark said. And some folks may say, oh, I'd never do that. So here's something that I would actually underscore. You'd be amazed at what you will hear if you reach out to somebody else and say, you know what, I've either read some of your work or... I've seen you at conferences or whatever. Would you mind touching base every so often? And I say this because this happened to me where somebody out of the blue who I did not know just reached out and we've been meeting every month for close to a year now. And this was somebody out of the blue. And I think there are many of us out there who'd be happy to do those kind of things, especially if your discipline doesn't have a built-in mentoring connector kind of thing. And for all of you out there who are psychologists, the Society for the Teaching of Psychology has a mentoring site where you can find mentors for you. So not every discipline has that, but do not poo-poo the possibility that just reaching out will get you a connection. Now, mind you, just like anything else in higher education, reaching out may get you nothing and the person may not even respond. But like I tell my students, in this day and age of things going into your junk folder, don't give up after one email, give up after three. Because who knows where email messages go nowadays.
1: One of the things that you address in the book is about preparing for all different roles in all different stages of the career. And I know that when I was applying for jobs, I was peeking around the corner at what tenure might look like. And then after I was tenured, I was peeking my head around wondering what it's like to be a full professor. And now I'm peeking my head around wondering what's next. (laughs) So what advice do you have as folks are moving through their continuum of their career and peeking around corners? It's often a mystery what happens next.
3: I think seeking a mentor who is at that next stage is a great way to get a better view of what that looks like. And maybe more than one, because my experience is that as you progress in your career in academia, there are lots of different paths you can take, lots of different ways people can go. So I know that Regan's definitely in the administration end of things. Mark is heading there. I've popped in and out of administrative roles, but I keep coming back to faculty roles. I think there's a lot of ways you can design your career as you go. And so having multiple mentors and multiple models is a good way to get that look ahead.
4: My answer, Rebecca, to your question was, well, that's the reason we wrote the book, is so that you could get a better peek around those corners. And I would add also to what Pam just alluded to. There's a reason that this is a three-author book, that it's not just a single-person story. And sort of serendipitously, the three of us have had very Sort of different careers within this umbrella of teaching focused institutions. And so you get those multiple perspectives. And so peeking around the corner, looking at my transition from pre tenure to post tenure looks different than peeking around the corner and looking at how Pam did it or how Regan did it. But in our book, you get all three of those. And so you really do get more information that way.
2: Yeah. And Rebecca, going back to your situation, I'm going to say something I think somewhat controversial in that. I don't think everybody needs to go through the same rung of higher education and climb one rung after the other. We talked about balance a little earlier. Let me say this bluntly. You may be able to get a lot more balance if you're not a full professor. You may be able to get a lot more balance just once you get tenure without needing to then push yourself to that next level. There's more responsibility with more levels. And I think to get a little pam and philosophical here, it's a state of mind what are you comfortable with? And I like to say, are you being challenged? Do you look forward to going into school or do you look forward to your work? If it is, do you need that rank? Now, don't get me wrong. It's a whole separate story about the tenure track versus the fixed term. That's a separate issue. But especially in the traditional tenure track moves and also in ranking for for fixed term, and really ask yourself, are you happy where you are? Are you happy with the challenges? And that's when you look around the corners and look around different corners. Because as Pam alluded to, maybe you look around into the administrative corner and you go, no, I don't want to go that route. But by the same token, you may look around that corner and go, wow, I love the challenges there. But it's totally okay if you don't. You're not a lesser person if you decide not to go up for full If you decide not to go into administration and the last thing I'll say that is a little pragmatic is this is why volunteering for committees is wonderful because then you get a taste for those different corners and whether you want to go those routes or not.
4: And one thing I would add, we're talking a lot about tenure, and more and more, there are institutions that are not tenure institutions. In my institution right now, we have two different types of faculty, some who are on a tenure track, tenure system, and some who don't have a tenure system. The title of the book is Thriving in Academia, and we do talk about, can you be thriving in academia as an affiliate faculty for your entire career? I think that's very possible. I know people who have done that. So it doesn't have to be that traditional route of a tenure track position and then tenure and then department chair. We really want people to thrive whatever works for them. And if that means that you're at an institution where you're just on multi-year contracts for your whole career, that's great. How do you make that work? If you are in the position where you want to be an affiliate faculty member and teach classes at multiple different institutions, can you build a thriving career out of that? Yes, absolutely. Certainly you can all of that is part of the book.
2: Mark's commenting about the different tenure track versus fixed term and contracts. To push that a little further, I think the constitution of higher education and how it's done is looking very different. Something that we didn't touch on at all in the book, because it was written mostly prior to the pandemic, was remote learning. There are things coming down the pike. How do you deal with different teaching modalities? How do you deal with remote work? These are two major ways that higher education is changing. And you've got to hope that folks at your institution are looking ahead and not just rushing to get back to normal, where normal wasn't the best place to be. So maybe another book on
0: how to continue to thrive in academia when the world's falling apart. There you go. (laughs)
1: I'll look forward to reading that when you guys are done with that. I'll be the first purchase.
0: So we always
2: end with the question, what's next? For me,
0: lunch. Lunch is what's
4: next.
2: (laughs) With the message being, don't forget about your physical needs to thrive in academia. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) That was the subtle subtext over there. Self-care, Regan. It's actually, I was mostly jesting, but I just finished a project writing about how to help students study. And the last chapter is self care. So sleeping and eating and family time and social support. And we don't talk about that enough. I think something I have seen over the last year is a lot more of us on social media and in these places being more direct about, look, people, take time for yourself. And I think, honestly, my big answer to the what's next is how do we give each other the permission to do that? And I don't think we in higher education are very good at that yet. I had a colleague one time that was from Europe, and he was just
4: appalled at what happened at our institution, which was that everybody ate lunch in their office at their desk working. And he just thought this was crazy, that you wouldn't stop working, go somewhere have lunch as a separate event. And I often think about that when I'm sitting in my office having lunch and thinking, this is ridiculous. I should be able to take the time that it takes for me to have lunch away from work, not trying to eat and answer emails. I should be able to go somewhere, have a mug of tea, have my lunch and have that time. And that's just a small example, I think, of what Regan's talking about. We need to set up a system.
1: Well, you all had me at lunch.
4: At my university, I was instrumental a couple of years ago in just getting a faculty lounge so that we had a place that faculty could go that wasn't in their office, that wasn't open to students so that we could spend a little bit of time not doing the job for a moment.
0: There was recently a podcast sometime in the last month or so. I think it was Rough Translation, where they talked about someone who went from the U.S. to France, and that person wanted to have lunch at her desk, but there was a tremendous amount of peer pressure to get her outside to leave the office. Even if it was raining or cold, there was pressure on her to get out of there, and it was a bit of a transition for her.
4: I think one of the next steps that I think we're all interested in and hoping for is really just continuing to share this information. So the book is out there now. There are starting to be conferences that are in person. We are starting to do presentations at conferences about parts of the book. And I know talking to Pam, we're very excited about being able to go to conferences and talk about how do you be intentional about your service? How do you deal with feeling burnt out as a mid-career faculty member? These workshops and conferences, and as Regan alluded to very early on in this conversation, talking to each other about teaching, about teaching-focused institutions. For me, that's the thing I'm really looking forward to is getting back to where we can gather as a community and have those conversations and share each other's knowledge.
3: And I think hearing feedback from readers also will be really helpful because As Regan said, we conceived of the book before the pandemic, finished writing a little bit of it during the height of the pandemic, and we'd like to hear from readers about how things are different for them now and how we can address some of those challenges that they might be facing that we didn't anticipate in the
2: book. Yeah, and I think definitely striding into next steps, I can't help but think how we, and I mean the three of us, can better leverage psychological science because this book was about teaching and teaching focused institutions and the three legs of the stool of teaching research and service. But especially when you try to address the bulk of the questions, whether it's balancing, whether it's productivity, the reality is the psychological knowledge out there that can help you do it better. And what I haven't seen yet is how do you really explicitly leverage what we know about stress and coping and planning, and judgment, and decision-making, and all these psychological topics to help the teaching enterprise. So if you were to say, hey, what's a potential fun NETS project that builds on this? That's definitely something that comes to mind where we unabashedly say, here's how you can do these things, because I think it's the pragmatics of how to do things that are important. We have a lot of pragmatics in the book, but especially, and I love the reader feedback element, Pam, especially with reader feedback, I know people go, give me an example, give me another example, give me another example. So pragmatics and leveraging some of those theoretical things that we know about as psychologists, I think really good scope for that.
3: I think about maybe adding a workbook component to this sort of thing where there are really practice exercises and practical, even though I do like the philosophical, but as teachers, we do know that people need concrete examples. They need to work through things. They need to try to problem solve, not in the situation where they're doing the problem solving for real. And so adding some piece like that, I think would be valuable. And some of that is figuring out how to do your balance. I'll admit I'm not very good at that. I eat at my desk all the time.
4: I'm happy to say that I have become somewhat notorious on my campus for skateboarding during lunch. I do little laps around the campus on my longboard and everybody laughs at the old guy trying to be cool, but at least gets me out of my office.
2: Mark, we need a TikTok of you skateboarding with the book viral. That's going to go viral. That's yeah. going to go viral. That'll go viral.
1: I think so. Well, thank you all for joining us and sharing all your insights in this book. We're happy to share the book and share this episode with our listeners.
3: Thank you. And we'd love feedback from the book. Once you run your sessions, we'd love to hear what people have to say.